Good morning, Trinity. My name is Mike. I'm the teaching pastor here at the church. And once again, I'm recording this sermon from what we call the community room at our building here in Libertyville. Um, the coronavirus continues to spread, and so um, we're continuing to uh, just pre-record material and content here and then send that to you on Sunday mornings. I'm missing you dearly. I imagine that this past week has destabilized quite a few of us, so I know that many of us are, are working from home now. And, and yet there's, I already know many of you who have lost hours or even been laid off this past week. This, this virus is causing enormous changes uh, in, in our community at large and certainly within our congregation. And you know maybe you haven't necessarily lost your job or something, but you're just feeling the sense of panic and the sense of fear that's, uh, that's, that's starting really to, to take hold. And if you spend any time reading the, the, the news that's, that's coming around, I'm sure that that makes it even harder. Or if you're not scared of the virus, it, you know, the economy is giving you plenty of reason to, to fear there as well. I know that many of, of you are adjusting to home life, uh, especially home life with your kids home at all hours now. Some of you are, are trying to suddenly learn these, these skills in, in March, these homeschooling skills to try to figure out how, how to continue education for your kids, and, and it's been chaos. Um, this, this is a crisis moment for, for our country that we're walking through. And, and so before I jump into the sermon, I just want to acknowledge that, that today, probably even more than last week, many of you are sitting down to listen to this with heavy hearts, with, with a lot on your minds, we're being confronted with our fragility. And there are lots of, of, of needs that we're likely to encounter, maybe not always for ourselves, but certainly for our neighbors, for, for friends, for other folks in the church. And we should do everything that we can to, to meet those needs if we're able. But I also want to remind us that along with those physical needs, we, we're also confronting deep spiritual needs. Uh, probably there, there's some idols that are beginning to, to crop up that, that we're having to confront. We're, we're sensing our deep need not only for physical things, but for, for spiritual things. That ultimately, what, what we need just as much as our daily bread is, is we need Christ. Every one of us needs Christ, and every one of us, every one of us who, who has Christ has Christ to give. We are going through a trial, and the best thing that, that we have to offer each other is, is not only... Um, these physical things, but Christ himself to, to draw each other back to him. So this is a, a trial that we're going through, not only as a church, but, but as a, a country. And there's kind of two ways of thinking about a trial. So you can think of a, a trial as a situation where someone is judged, right? Where someone is judged. Um, in this case, a, a trial is, is where you explore evidence and a sentence is passed. So, you know, it's a, it's a trial of judgment. But also there's another way of thinking about a trial, a trial can also reveal. This is something that comes up a lot in, in the scriptures, the idea of a temptation or a trial being a, a situation that, that, that maybe it, you know, there's judgment involved, but, but really it's about revealing something to be true. And I, I think that that's certainly the kind of, of trial that we're going through. So, so that's what we mean when we say that we're going through trying times. There, there are times that push us to rise to the occasion. There are times that, that test what we're really about. And so as, as we go through this, may it be said of us that we relied on Christ. May, may it be said of us that we followed in his footsteps, come what may, 
Uh, may our neighbors look back on, on this season as a time when they were helped by a Christian. May that be how our neighbors look back on this. And may God be with us. And so that kind of leads me into today's sermon. Uh, today we're talking about the, the trial or the trials, plural, of, of Jesus. And what we're going to see is how, how Jesus, throughout this whole process, these two trials, the first one before the, uh, the council of the Jewish religious authorities, it's called the Sanhedrin. The first trial is in front of them, and then the second one is in front of the, the Roman governor of Judea named Pontius Pilate. And in both of these situations, Jesus is judged, right? So it's a trial that results in judgment. But then along the way, what, what, what Matthew shows us is that, that Jesus is being judged by these sort of human authorities, but then right along the whole process, as he's being carted from place to place, there's something else that's happening. Jesus is being revealed for who he really is. He's being shown to be exactly what he said he was all along. So all these sorts of things come together as we look at the passage, and, and that's what we're gonna what we're gonna find. So we're gonna look at these trials through we're gonna look at Jesus through through three different perspectives. The first perspective will be the Sanhedrin, the council. The second perspective will be through the eyes of Pilate, and then the last one will be through the eyes of the disciple. And we're gonna see how how each one of these different perspectives w- will judge Jesus differently. Each one of these perspectives judges Jesus differently. So first, we're going to consider the first perspective, the perspective of the Sanhedrin, the council. And what they're going to say is that Jesus is worthy of death. They will judge Jesus worthy of death. And this point is going to be the majority of the sermon, since I'm going to kind of use it to set the scene and stuff like that. And then the the last two, two points will be significantly quicker. Again, just like I said last week, um, if you can, have a Bible open. To follow along. We're, we're not going to be using slides or anything like that, so grab your home Bible, uh, open it up. Normally I'd point you to the, the page number, um, but I know we're all using our, our different Bibles rather than the, the pew Bibles. Um, it's just uh, another small thing that reminds me how much I miss you guys. Um, I will be standing this time. I learned my lesson last sermon. Uh, A, the stool is uncomfortable in my butt. Um, but then also, there's just parts of Scripture where you just can't sit. You just got to stand. Um, so I'm just going to stand the whole time this time. All right, so I, I'm going to read the first part of the passage. It's a long passage, so I'm going to read it in sections throughout. This is chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew, starting at verse 57, going to verse 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, Peter sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. 
What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, the council answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? That last bit, one of the other gospel writers records that as they were doing that, they had, they had blindfolded Christ. They had blindfolded Jesus so that uh, he wouldn't know where the blow was coming from. And so that, that's why they're saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Uh, they're sort of mocking him. So as you'll remember last week, Jesus was arrested and, and taken away to be tried. And in many ways, he ends up in this kangaroo court. So for one thing, they're not meeting where a trial would normally take place with the Sanhedrin. They're just meeting in the high priest's house, basically. Um, the other thing, they're not meeting during the daytime. They, they want this thing quick. They want it uh, kind of covered up. And so they're meeting in the middle of the night. The, the trial proceedings appear to take all night long, as we'll see. So they're, they're meeting in the middle of the night. They're not playing by any of the rules. Also, the whole witness situation is just a total joke. They're, they're looking for just any kind of testimony from somebody, just so they can kind of check a box that they were at least halfway decent, halfway honest in this process. And so they're looking for, for they need two witnesses to testify to, to pass a charge. And, and they don't care if it's a lie. They just, they need two witnesses to come forward. And so it, it takes them a while to find two people who agree on a testimony. Eventually, they do find two witnesses that come forward and, and they agree. And, and maybe it's not as crushing as a, te a testimony as the Sanhedrin wants, but it, it certainly gets them going. Here's what the two guys say. They, they say that at some point they heard Jesus utter these words. I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And this was, at, this, this was actually something that Jesus said. So in the, in the Gospel of John, we, we hear that, that Jesus said something like these words. He, he didn't say, I am able, specifically. He, he said, this temple will be destroyed and in three days rebuilt. And he was, he was talking about his, his own body when he said it. But this testimony from these two witnesses, it kind of gives the high priest an inroad. So he starts to push Jesus for an explanation on these words. He says, have you no answer? What do you say to, to what these guys are, are testifying? Now, this testimony is helpful to the, the council. You know, they, they, can, they can kind of pursue this and, and possibly even work up a, a death charge with, with it or a, a, a death sentence with it. And here's why it has to do with who Messiah was thought to be, right? So the council would have a very specific idea of who the Christ was meant to be. They were under Roman rule, uh, their land was occupied, and so they assumed Messiah would be sort of like a freedom fighter. They were waiting for a rebel king, basically. And there was this idea, which is actually straight out of the prophets, that whenever Messiah showed up, he would come to purify his people, he would bring together. The true people of God, which which means that he, he kind of would would purify them. He'd bring together a pure people, and and so, you know, you could you could logically um, derive from that that okay, he's going to purify God's people. He's going to purify the worship of God's people. Therefore, Messiah might have something to do with the temple, right? So, so if if Jesus is the Christ you know, destroying the temple or rebuilding it, doing, doing stuff with the temple uh, could, could conceivably be up to him. All right, so if he's the Christ, he, he can kind of do those things. So the, the high priest wants to pursue that, that line because he, he wants to hear Jesus acknowledge that he thinks he's the Christ. 
And so the high priest pushes and he, he just asks straight up, are, are you Messiah? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus gives him this really interesting, just kind of like withering response. He said, you have said so. And uh, it's amazing how much discussion that one answer has has generated over the years. And you can probably imagine why. It's, it's, it's not quite as like, like, it doesn't exactly sound like a yes. It doesn't exactly sound like a no. What's he really saying? It's actually even more confusing in the Greek. Essentially, Jesus is saying yes. So in the original language, it's, it's definitely, there's been like studies on it. Jesus is saying yes. He's saying, yes, I am the Christ. But he, it's a qualified yes. So one commentator, you know, calls it an evasive affirmative, uh, which I kind of like. It, it's, it's an evasive yes. So he's, he's kind of you know, uh, evading the question in some ways, and yet also acknowledging, yes, you could appropriately call me by those titles, Christ and Son of God. Now, why is he being evasive? Well, I think it's, it's, it's one of these situations. So it'd be one of those situations where, let's say, a parent is trying to explain to a young kid what, what baseball is all about, like how, how you play baseball. And they say, okay, well, the pitcher has the ball, and the pitcher throws the ball, and then someone tries to hit it with a bat. And at which moment the, the kid is just, like, horrified and confused. Like, why would you use a bat to hit the ball? That sounds horrifying because, of course, the kid is, is thinking about, like, a flying rodent. So same word, two very different ideas. The high priest is act, asking Jesus, are you the rebel king that we've been waiting for? And Jesus is answering... I'm the rebel king, but not the one you've been waiting for. He's saying, I am, I am Messiah, but you and I mean something very different when we say that word. They were waiting for someone to challenge the political elite, but Jesus came to challenge our pet idols. They were waiting for someone who would give them physical security, but Jesus came to give them eternal life to the point that they would be willing to lay down security for his sake. They were waiting for someone to establish them economically, but Jesus came to establish their calling in God such that they would risk it all for his kingdom and still know they had gotten the better end of the bargain. He brings God, God's kingdom not first to our environment, but into our hearts and into our shared life together. He brings God's people together, not around an ethnic identity, but around him and his sacrifice. He brings the light of God's glory to the nations, not through conquest, but through the announcement of his forgiveness. He's doing all the things that Messiah does, but it looks a whole lot different than what the high priest has in his mind. This Messiah is more than a freedom fighter. This Messiah is more than a revolutionary. This Messiah is more than a political insurgent. And most importantly, he's more than a Messiah. Okay, and this is where Jesus goes with his answer now. So th th this part is, is kind of one of the more confusing elements if, if you're new to the Christian and the Hebrew scriptures. Th this might seem almost backwards. But so, so here Jesus is going to say the thing that... that that gets a charge of blasphemy passed on him. Um, he says, yes, I'm the Christ, the Son of God, which is actually not a blasphemous thing for him to say. He's only, he's, th those are both titles for Messiah. And, and neither of them have anything to do with divinity. So that, I, that might sound a little bit uh, 
surprising, but yeah, the title Son of God actually doesn't have much to do with divinity. So in the Hebrew scriptures, when the phrase Son of God is used, it either refers to Israel or, or it's another title for Messiah, which is what we're seeing here. So it, it, it comes from 2 Samuel, where God makes a promise to a king that, that his child, his son, the, the successor to the throne will also be God's son. And so it's a, it's a title for the anointed one, for the son of God, the son of David. So Christ, son of God, those actually don't have divine meanings in and of themselves when you're, uh, when you're looking at the Hebrew scriptures. So the, the title that has divine meaning is son of man. And again, I know that sounds a little bit backwards. That's kind of what's confusing. It might be confusing if you're if you're at all new to the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. But yeah, Son of God doesn't necessarily mean divinity. Son of Man does. Uh, it just really comes down to how the terms came into development. So Son of Man is a term that can, that comes out of the the writings about the prophet Daniel. Uh, the Son of Man is this figure he, in, in the in the text. It's called one like a son of man or someone like a son of man so so a, a human a, a human like figure a son of humanity uh emerges in in the book of daniel to defeat the chaos of evil so the son of man what he does is he approaches the throne of god and he's handed all dominion all glory all power an everlasting kingdom just all this uh, power and authority is put on the shoulders of the son of man to, to the extent that he is is like going to share God's rule. In fact, there's this image used of the Son of Man that he comes on the clouds of heaven. Doesn't mean a lot to a 21st century American, but it means a whole lot to a first century Jew. That's a, that's a divine image. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of of heaven. That's a, that's an image of divine glory. So the Son of Man shares in the divinity of God. So what Jesus does here and this is how he gets charged with blasphemy he basically says like okay yeah you've said it i'm the christ but there's more i'm not just the christ i'm the son of man i've been calling myself this from the start and from now on you're going to see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory jesus is saying that through this process that this process of him being crucified somehow from now on once this process is, is, is brought to completion at the cross, he is going to begin ruling. That the Son of Man is about to take his throne. He's saying, you don't know what kind of kingdom I came to bring. You don't know what it means to be part of Messiah's people. You don't know what Messiah came to, to do. In fact, you still think Messiah is just a man. Jesus is not just a man. He is the Son of Man. And so that's really the, the thing that makes the high priest tear his garment, uh, which is a, you know, that, that was a, a really meaningful sort of ritual, uh, basically just to, to express grief, and in this case, deep offense. Um, this is everything that they need to put a death sentence against Jesus, and in fact, it's probably more than they need. And so they sentence him, and then at that moment, they, they spit on him and beat him and mock him there in the courtyard of the high priest. And even just that moment would confirm to them that Jesus is not who he says he is. Because what kind of Messiah gets put in chains? What, what, what kind of son of man ends up black-eyed and flecked with spit? This is not the Savior they need. This man is worthy of death. 
So what they're doing is, is they have this idea of who Messiah should be, and so they are going to trade the true Messiah to, to keep their false idea of a Messiah. They're trading what they need for what they want. They're trading the true Jesus for a false Jesus. And this ends up happening literally. This ends up happening literally, this trading of one Jesus for another, because they're going to trade Jesus the Christ for Jesus Barabbas. So give me a second, I will get to that. So the Jews, they're not able to pass a death sentence on their own. That's, that is not allowed to them under Roman rule. That's why they have this, this basically lynching. Uh, they, they call it stoning. They'll stone a person to death. That's a first century Jewish lynching because they weren't allowed to, to actually pass a death sentence on anybody. So, but the Jews, they, they, they want a, an official death sentence on Jesus. So we get this brief part, the first couple of verses of chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Why are they doing that? Well, they've, they've passed that death sentence, but now they need to figure out how they're going to get it done. So they, they talk together about how they're going to do this, how they're going to convince the Romans. They bind Jesus, lead him away through the streets, and deliver him over to Pilate, the governor. So the Jews, what they do is they, they the, the Jewish religious authorities, they, they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the governor of Judea. His reputation and history is mostly terrible. Uh, he was famous for, for putting down rebellions just with total overkill. I mean, uh, he, he feared people, but then also his, his fear of, of riots and stuff just led him to, to be more cruel than he needed to be. He was just, he's not, he doesn't show up well in the scriptures or in Josephus or, or in other writings that, that mention what Pilate was like. And so the Jews present Jesus to Pontius Pilate. We'll go over that interaction in more detail in a minute. But what we're, what we're going to find is that Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus, and so he kind of tries to appeal to the crowd. And, and I'm going to skip to verse 15. If you can turn with me, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but 15 to verse 23. Now at the, the feast, the Passover feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner that they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So there was this custom, and what it seems like is that it was actually a Jewish custom. Uh, where around the Passover they would release a prisoner. Now, the Romans were not always very accommodating to the people that, that they were occupying, but to the Jews and to many Greek nations, they, they were very accommodating. Uh, you know, just basically it was a way of, of keeping folks kind of under control was to accommodate some of their traditions. And so this seems like it was a tradition that the, that the Jews had that Pilate just basically kept up. So he would have prisoners of theirs and every Passover he'd 
he'd let them pick one and he'd hand back that prisoner. So it was basically just a way of accommodating the, the Jews. Now there's this notorious man, that's what Matthew calls him, a, a notorious man, it probably means notorious to the Romans. There's a notorious man who recently led a rebellion, uh, and so he's on his way to crucifixion, along with all of his followers. And he might be the kind of man that the Romans would crucify, but for the Jews, he's probably the kind of man they want to celebrate. He's a freedom fighter, a rebel. And so in some ways, he kind of fits the profile. Obviously, they, they're not thinking of this man as, as Messiah. But he kind of fits the profile of what they'd be looking for in a Messiah. Like, they, they want a freedom-fighting rebel, like this guy, right? Barabbas. We know him as Barabbas. Here's where things get really interesting. There's actually pretty good reason to think that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. So the name Jesus, Yeshua, uh, Joshua, uh, the, the name Jesus was actually really common at, at this time. And you can tell why, like, Joshua was, was famous for breaking into the, the promised land and, and routing all the nations, like emptying the land of all the, the other nations and sort of winning their land. And so now what's happening, there's, there's another nation occupying the land of the Jews. And so all these parents are naming their kids Jesus. All, their, all these parents are naming their kids Joshua, Yeshua, because we want these people out of our land, right? And so it's sort of a wish. Uh, so the name Jesus was, was, was pretty common. And what's interesting is that in some of the very early manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, at this moment when Barabbas comes up, he's called Jesus Barabbas. There's even writings of the church fathers early on saying that they, they want that part taken out of those manuscripts that included it. Not every manuscript included it, but but some very early ones did. And there were church fathers very early on who were like, let's cut that part out. The only Jesus that belongs in our Bibles is the is Jesus the Christ. Um, and so it's, it's kind of this interesting thing. In fact, some of your Bibles may even include a note about it at, at this point. So there's, there's pretty good reason to believe that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. So what you have is this situation where Pilate is appealing to the crowd to pick one Jesus over another, right? They're, they're, they're choosing one Jesus against another. And Pilate is basically saying like, hey, you, you all know that Jesus the Christ is innocent. Why shouldn't we release him instead of Jesus Barabbas? But they insist, we don't want that kind of Jesus. We want a Jesus who will bend to our interests. We want a Jesus who will fight for our cause. And so Pilate concedes, fine, I'll give you Barabbas. What do you want me to do with Jesus, the Christ? And their answer is crucify him. Crucify that Jesus. Crucify the Jesus who tells us to turn the other cheek. Crucify the Jesus who picks grain for his disciples on the Sabbath. Crucify the Jesus who challenges our idols. Crucify the Jesus who calls judgment down on our temple and on our worship. Crucify the Jesus who eats with sinners, makes disciples out of tax collectors, and dignifies prostitutes. Crucify the Jesus who comes not to be served, but to serve. Crucify the Jesus who tells me I too must be crucified to follow him. They're basically saying, Rome, you can take the Jesus with blood on his face. We will take the Jesus with blood on his knuckles. So the Jews try Jesus and they judge him worthy of death. Now what about Pilate? 
What we're going to find for with, with Pilate is that G, you know, Pilate also judges Jesus, and he, he sees him worthy of respect. So I'll, I'll reread the, the two uh, sort of bookends. Well, actually, why don't I just read 11 to 14? I'll read that part. Now Jesus stood before the governor. you got to imagine, you know, he's standing before Pilate. You know, his face is probably bloodied up from the beating he's taken. The governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says the same thing he said to the high priests. You've said so. Again, what you mean by that is different than what I mean by that. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. So the Jews bring Jesus to the governor, Pilate, and the interaction between Jesus and, and Pilate is really interesting. The, the Jews would have probably groomed Pilate a little bit for this interaction. And it's kind of a, in a clever way. So Messiah, that's, you know, Messiah is a king who's, who's ultimately coming to, to reign over all the world. But Messiah is a Jewish king. And so when they go to Pilate, they word it king of the Jews. Okay. So the last king of the Jews was Herod, whose job Pilate took. Right. So the, the, the region that, that Herod was overseeing, Pilate was now overseeing as governor of, of Judea. And so basically the, the, the Jews have brought this charge against Jesus so that it kind of sounds like Jesus is after Pilate's job. So Pilate's interrogating Jesus. But over the course of this whole time that he has with the Lord, he, he walks away very, very shaken. And there's three reasons for that. First, uh, verse 12, no matter how many accusations the Jews are throwing at Jesus, because they're in the same room, it's not just Pilate and Jesus, they're in the room sort of reporting to, to Pilate what's going on. No matter how many accusations they throw at Jesus, he's just silent, just quiet the whole time. Total self-control, he's completely composed, just sitting there, bloodied up right? Bruises, black eyes, sitting there in silence with Pilate. And that amazes him, right? This is unlike any other kind of rebel Pilate's ever seen. There's a second reason. This shows up in verse 18. Nothing the Jews are bringing up against this man, the Jewish religious authorities, nothing that they're bringing up against Jesus, it doesn't make him sound like an insurrectionist, right? And so Pilate is able to see that, that these chief priests and elders and scribes, these, these reigning officials in the Jewish political or, uh, religious system, they're really just motivated by envy. And so that doesn't give him any reason to, to think that this man is guilty. It gives him reason to think that this man is full of authority and full of, full of uh, a, a certain kind of charisma and, and that there's power to this guy. Something about him that, that threatens the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But lastly, Pilate has kind of a startling experience. Here he is in the middle of sort of working through this, this case of interrogating this man who claims to have divine power. And while all this is going on, his household is sort of disrupted by this supernatural encounter. Pilate's wife has a dream, a nightmare. More specifically, she says that she's suffered much in a dream. So, I, mean, I mean, it's a nightmare that she's had. And Jesus is in it, right? And so now on top of all this stuff that Pilate is observing, he has this, this uh, experience that would, would probably feel kind of violating 
honestly. I mean, that there's been this like sort of supernatural experience that has violated his household, made its way into his household, into members of his household that aren't himself. And and the the it's God giving his wife night visions of this man who's in front of him. And so Pilate wants nothing to do with Jesus' death. He certainly doesn't think Jesus is Messiah or God or whatever, probably, but he can tell he's a man to be respected. And so Pilate is kind of in this predicament. Jesus is clearly a good man, an extraordinary man, undeniably so. And yet here's this crowd of people who want him dead. And so Pilate, he's no disciple, but neither does he want to be responsible for Jesus' death, especially given all the spooky stuff. And so he tries to dissuade the crowd. First, like we talked about, he tries to get them to take Jesus instead of Barabbas. He tries to get the crowd to answer just what evil has he done? They, they, don't, they don't answer it. In the end, he, he ends up bending to the crowd. Now, the decision of whether or not to kill Jesus fell on Pilate, right? He, he will be just as responsible as this crowd, and deep down, he probably knows that, and he doesn't want to be held responsible, because after all, he respects Jesus. He thinks that that should get him off the hook. He's no disciple, but, but you know, he's sort of... Uh, he sort of thinks this man has something to give us, you know, right? He's, he's, he's worthy of respect. And so he's going to hand Jesus over to death, but he's going to do it in a way where he kind of tries to deflect any blame for Jesus' death. And so this is what happened. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I want to point out before I move forward that this verse in which the, the Jews call down the blood of Christ on themselves, that has obviously been used in Christian history to justify terrible atrocities um, toward Jewish people by Christians. I mean, even a cursory reading of this text would, would tell you that that is a terrible use of what's happening here. It's not even reading Matthew well, given that Matthew is a Jew, so is Jesus, and so are all of his disciples at the beginning. So this isn't an anti-Semitic moment. Something else is going on, and, and, and I'll, I'll briefly touch on that a little bit later, but I feel it's important to just mention that, acknowledge the misuse of this text over the course of history. So what's happening here is kind of this disturbing moment. Where, where Pilate, he, he does this just utterly empty gesture. And it's all, it's all an effort to do these kind of like mental gymnastics to avoid blame. And the crowds sort of say like, fine, fine, you're innocent. We'll take the responsibility, whatever, kill him. They have no regard for Jesus. Pilate tries to avoid the blame. But in the end, he sends Jesus off to be scourged. Like he is the one that gives that order the scourging here was something that often came before crucifixion. Death by crucifixion could take a long time, so sometimes the Romans would scourge somebody to speed the process along. The, the process of the scourging itself was sometimes fatal. Uh, you know, it's not just like a, a whip. It's a, uh, a band, it's multiple bands of leather with shards of, of metal and glass and bone stuck into the leather. So it it's, uh, it's pretty horrifying. So what we're left with are these two ways of encountering Christ, those of, of the crowd there and, and that of Pilate. Some will want nothing to do with the way of Jesus. 
And it occurs to me just to mention that in times of uncertainty, especially, it's hard to trust Jesus. In times of uncertainty, especially, it's hard to follow the way of Jesus. Why think about our neighbors right now? Why would, a, why would I follow a Christ who doesn't promise me physical safety? I'll take a different kind of savior. Thank you. That's one way. But others sort of appreciate Christ. They respect him, but only in the same way that they would respect the wisdom of the Buddha or Krishna or Osho, Bertrand, Russell, Maimonides. There's been lots of wise teachers over the years. My high school English teacher. I don't want any of them to die. Certainly I don't share responsibility for Jesus' death. How could I after all? I respect him so much. These are kind of the the two ways, and, and both of them, at the end of the day, are still responsible for the death of Christ. There's now a third way of approaching Jesus, and that's the way of the disciple. For us, Jesus is not worthy of death. And and for us, to say that Jesus is worthy of respect is to just fall so short of the truth that it's almost insulting. For us, Jesus is worthy of glory. I mean, you know, just some of our reasons for this show up just by going back over the passage and let's look at what Jesus has been doing this whole time that he's being judged. He's being judged worthy of death, worthy of respect, but now this trial, you know, this is the two the two kinds of a trial, a trial that judges and a trial that reveals. Now here's what is revealed through this trial, and that's that Jesus is worthy of glory. Jesus has lived up to his teachings every step of the way. He has lived by his own teachings. So when he is struck in the face by the priests and the elders, he just takes it, turns the other cheek. When the high priest swears an oath by God, Jesus does not follow along. He takes no oath. He lives by the Sermon on the Mount. He lets his yes be yes. When he goes to the cross, he's going to forgive his enemies and pray for them just like he instructed us to do. He lives up to his own way. And he doesn't depart from it. When he tells us to pick up his, our crosses, he, it's because he's going to pick up his. For Jesus to be the Messiah we need, he has to be crucified. And so he goes silent as a sheep to the shearers. Because he will not speak a word in his defense. In fact, the only time he's going to speak is when he says a thing that's going to ensure his death sentence. It's when he calls himself divine. It's the only time when he really speaks up aside from just saying, sure, I'm the king. He turns his face to those who pluck out the beard. His back to those who strike with the scourge. Nothing will turn him from his mission. Nothing will stop him from absorbing the sin of humanity. Nothing will stop him from pouring out his blood for forgiveness. The hopes of the world are on his shoulders. And the amazing thing in this passage that we're supposed to see as we've been going along in this journey in, in, in the book of Matthew is that no one can see it. The crowds can't see it. The chief priests can't see it. The scribes can't see it. The elders can't see it. Pilate can't see it. But the hopes of the world are on his shoulders. The truth is that the Jesus they judge will one day judge the world. The Jesus whose prophetic powers they mock is the Jesus who prophesied that this moment would come. This Jesus, who's now sort of nominally respected by this Gentile ruler, at his birth he was worshipped by Gentile rulers who came a far, far way to see him and to kneel. When Pilate washes his hands at the sentencing of Christ, he is unwittingly filling the role of the priest who washes his hands before slaying a heifer for sacrifice. 
And then most amazingly, when the crowds shout, let his blood be upon us, they're unknowingly saying the very thing that Christian after Christian after Christian has prayed from the day Jesus rose. Because that's what a disciple is in the end. It is someone who recognizes that his blood is upon us. It's not that the disciple is not responsible for Jesus' death. We are. All of us are responsible for the death of Christ. All of us are part of the reason why he died. And so we can say his blood is upon us. But there's another meaning to that. Because it's precisely by that same blood that we are forgiven. If his blood is not put upon us, then we are without hope. This is the Jesus in whom we trust. This is the Jesus who will lead us to life even in the face of uncertainty. May his blood be upon us. I think that's all I got. What I'd like to do, do now, I've been sort of reading some of the daily offices in the Book of Common Prayer, which is a great resource for devotions and, and other things. Um, this is called The Collect. And it's a, a prayer of asking for the peace of Christ, asking for the forgiveness of Christ, which is really the source of our peace, at least in part. I think the, the forgiveness of Christ and the sovereignty of God, like the rulership of God no matter what, and the forgiveness we have in Christ, the, that's the source of our peace, at least a big part of the source of our peace. And both of those things come up in this, in this little prayer, the peace of Christ, the, the forgiveness of our sins by faith alone, and the kingdom of God. Um, they all sh show up in a matter of, of two sentences. And so I, what I'd like to do is just for you to join me in prayer now as I, as I read the collect. Lord Jesus Christ, you said to your apostles, Peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. Regard not our sins, but our faith instead, and give to us the peace and unity of your kingdom where with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign, now and forever. Amen. Love you guys. So guys, again, I, I miss you dearly as we go through this, and I'm praying for your endurance. It could be a long time before we all get to share the sanctuary together, and again, I just... I can't wait, most of all, for communion. Um, continue to check the, the website for the Facebook as well for, for different announcements. The, the hope is that there will be some additional content coming, just ways that we can kind of stay connected, ways that uh, I'm hoping you guys might be encouraged and resourced. In the meantime, receive the grace. May the love of God, uh, may the grace of, of God and the love of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Cody, I'm going to retake the benediction. I need to remind myself of what it actually says. I'm having a huge stinky brain fart right now. Oh man, it stinks. Oh jeez, it's so smelly. Do it.
like I said last time, I miss you all dearly. Um, especially, I just can't wait to, to come together for, for communion, for the Lord's Supper. I'm praying for your guys' endurance. Stay connected with one, with one another. If there's folks in the congregation that you know are, you know, are part of vulnerable, uh, vulnerable populations, um, then I encourage you to be calling them frequently just to be checking in. Um, keep checking the website and the Facebook for different updates. The hope is the hope is that there will be some more content coming just to, to hopefully encourage you guys, resource you a little bit further. Uh, with that, receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace. Love you guys.